Hello and welcome to episode 31 of the Bike Karma Bicycle Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Brown. This is a podcast about bringing people from all over the bicycle-loving world together to share stories and make connections. Today, we've got Mike Kaplan, Bicycle Mike from Dudley, Massachusetts, who is going to tell us all about what happens when you give your kid the wrong bicycle and a lot of good information about bicycle collecting and vintage bicycle stories. We'll also talk to Chris Haig. He and his wife Sophie are going to travel across North and South America by bike. Kyan Wolf will explain how her dream of riding through the streets without cars on her bike turned into something much bigger. Frequent contributor Eric Weiss wants you to get your butt down to the building ball if you can in a nice way i talked to diedrich from st croix about biking on an island and taryn steals the mic away from me to try and practice being an announcer thank you for tuning in on this episode of bike karma i really respect that you went to this one thank you very much and enjoy the show okay thanks taryn let's roll out yeah So Mike is one of those characters that you meet in the bicycle world that just really inspires people around him. And he's kind of quiet and unassuming. And yet the first time I saw him, I swear to God, he was dressed just like Slash from Guns N' Roses. So he also started the Dudley Swap Mates, which was the first swap meet I ever went to. And it was a fairly successful run of swap meets over the course of several years. And they'll be continuing on in another location just at a different place in the future. So I got the chance to talk to him at the last Dudley, Dudley Swap Meet. Okay, I'm Michael Kaplan. I go by the name Bike Mike. I got that name about 10,000 antique bicycles ago and I haven't been able to shake it. But we do yeah, stuff with antique and classic bikes, mostly American stuff, and I've been doing it for over 40 years. In 1956, when my parents got divorced, when I was um, four years old, my mom moved to Lexington, Mass. My dad stayed in Worcester. And when my dad came out to visit me on my birthday, which was 4th of July, I talked them into getting me a Schwinn Black Phantom because um, I said, well, if you're going to dissolve our um, nuclear family, at least let me be the coolest kid in town with the coolest bike. So I showed him the Schwinn Black Phantom in the back of the um, comic books, in the back of Boy's Life magazine, and they agreed they were going to go and get me a Schwinn Black Phantom. So they went out to get it, and the salesman, the salesman talked them into the Robin Hood Raleigh because he said, oh, you don't want to get him that 68-pound Schwinn Phantom. All the kids want these, the Robin Hood Raleigh. They're lightweight. That's what every kid wants. So my parents came back with the Robin Hood Raleigh, and I had a conniption fit. I started jumping up and down. My parents were both shrinks. And I, and I said to them, I thought you were educated people. You're morons. Where's the horn? Where's the locking front suspension fork? Where's the taillight? Where's the brake light? I went completely went off on them. Where's the tank with the button? So I guess I overdid it. And they maybe, if I had been a little more laid back, they would have 
brought it back and got me the Schwinn I wanted, but they said, no, we can't reinforce this behavior, so <laughs> I was stuck with the Raleigh. As soon as my dad left to go home, I went out to my mom's shed and I grabbed a sledgehammer and I came back. And no, I didn't smash the bike. I have too much respect for bicycles. But I did knock the legs off one side of my mom's picnic table and I made a ramp. And now we were gonna see how far that Robin Hood Raleigh could go with no one on it. Riderless distance contest. And consequently, I jumped the Raleigh probably 15 times and I couldn't destroy it because it was too light. So it didn't destruct when it hit the ground. And so I was stuck with that bike. Now, I like to say that I have a complex about it, but I don't. But years later, I was at a bike show. I was winning trophies left and right from every, every category, best pre-war, best post-war, best restored, best unrestored, best of show. And people started saying to me, well, why you, why you keep coming back? Why don't you just stay up by the podium? You're winning every darn trophy here. Why do you go keep sitting down? And then a guy came up to me and said, hey, he said, you seem like the most knowledgeable guy here. I've got a Robin Hood Raleigh. I made the sign of the cross and I said, don't talk to me about Raleigh's. <laughs> and he said, what is it with Raleigh's? I was reading on the internet, there's some guy, Bicycle Mike, that really hates Raleigh's. And I said, oh, that's me. I'm only kidding, it's this tongue in cheek. I had a bad childhood experience, but I'm over it now. And I really love all bicycles. Well, I just wanted to thank you for sparking the hobby in me. I really oh, appreciate great. My that. Pleasure. Got to get well. young people involved. I try to advertise now to get people outside the regular collectors, the regulars that come here. To so we've been saying free appraisals. Bring your bike down. Oh, that's sell the idea. bike. Sell yeah. the bike you don't want. Find the bike you always wanted, and just try to really encourage people to get into the hobby. I call it the wayback machine to healthy fun and fitness. You know, when these bikes were popular in the 50s, there was very little heart disease in America very little obesity and um, try riding one of these one-speed bikes and you'll soon realize why <laughs> <laughs> I think that you're right every time that you get a newbie or a civilian coming yep. into it and they say oh I can buy a whole frame for five bucks sometimes I can get a wheel set for twenty dollars or fifty dollars and they get the bug and they get the they bug, get the bug. Or they can at least get some parts that people are shifting around. You know, a saddlebag at a shop is going to be yeah. 30 bucks. Here it's like four. It's a fraction, yeah. It's like the Salvation Army or a thrift store. I've written a lot of articles about bicycles. I wrote for Antique Trader and Toy Trader and Toy Box Magazine, the Vermont Antique Times, a lot of publications, New England Journal of Antiques and Collectibles. And the last article I wrote, I was saying how in real estate they always say it's location, location, location. And with bicycles, I say it's condition, condition, condition. And um, what happens is when people get the bug frequently and they see that there is money in this hobby, they go out and they scour the countryside grabbing every carcass, bicycle carcass they can get with dreams of early retirement. And but what I do say is that all the bicycles and the uninformed choices we make initially it's our tuition. It's it's it is. how you learn those those choices and how you become like seasoned and uh, an advanced collector. And so it's and a lot of times people will buy girls bikes to get the parts that, that will fit onto boys bikes. And so it's always and like Malcolm Forbes said, buy stuff because you like it, 
not because you think it's going to make you rich. And then if it doesn't go up in value, at least you like what you're stuck with. And I, I concur with that completely. I agree too. And I'll, I'll just say one thing at the end, which is basically, when's the last time you rode your Picasso to the park? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. I've seen people, you've been doing this long enough, where I've seen new swappers yeah. come into the profession with that attitude, like, I'm yeah. going to make a ton of money. And yeah. you see them coming in and then start asking eBay prices. Yeah. And it was sad, but I've seen a couple of people come and go. And then I've been there on the day where they're getting out of the hobby after getting into it. And their tuition was, they dropped out. They yeah. dropped out uh, before yeah. they graduated, unfortunately. Yeah. But you got That's into true. this whole game at really the early. perfect time, like yeah. when eBay was first starting, and you you kind of yeah. hit it at the exact right time. I was doing it for a long time before eBay. Yeah. You, you have time for one more sure. anecdote? Sure, yeah. This is kind of interesting. I used to have this pre-divorce in the 80s. I had over 650 bikes in my collection. I had boys and girls Hopalong Cassidy bikes, 20-inch, 24-inch, and 26-inch. Boys and girls Donald Duck bikes, 20-inch, 24-inch, and 26-inch. had a massive collection, high wheelers, wooden rim bikes. And my divorce kind of wiped me out to almost no bikes at all, and I built it back up. But when I sold my Hopalong Cassidy bikes, boys and girls, it was ironic. I had bought the boys' bike at the Copake bicycle auction quite some time ago, and I had bought the girls' bike in Maryland. I came, upon doing some research, came to find out that those two bikes had been given to a brother and sister for Christmas, and that they were, the bikes ended up getting reunited again in my collection, like 20 years later or more, maybe 40 years later. And this is way before eBay. America Online, in the uh, early 80s, or maybe mid-80s, whenever it was, they had the AOL bulletin boards. And I was on the AOL bulletin boards, and a guy said, looking for Hopalong Cassidy, Gene Autry, Roy Rogers, Cowboy Collectibles. So I emailed him and said, hey, do you have any Hopalong Cassidy bicycles? And he said, no, but I sure wish I did. And I said, I do. And he said, how much? Now, ironically, a few weeks earlier, I had tried to sell them at one of these Northeast Collectibles extravaganza shows, and I was asking 3500 for the pair, and really not a penny less, and a guy came and offered me 2000 for them. And I said, look, sir, I'll come down 750 you come up 750 you can steal them without a gun for 2750 And he said, no, I'm going to pass. Now, fast forward to where I've got the guy emailed from America Online, and he says, how much for the Hopalong Cassidy bikes? And I said, sir, if I don't get 6000 for them, I'm not selling them. And he says, I'm up near Niagara Falls. You're in New Hampshire. Um, he said, um, if I leave at 3 in the morning tonight, I can be there around. And I said, that's fine, but make sure you bring 6000 because if you bring $59.99.95, you're not going to go home with the bicycles. So he shows up, and I show him the girls' hoppy bike first, and he completely flips out because the condition was amazing, which is how it usually is. Girls' bikes tend to be in better condition than boys' bikes because girls were also playing with dolls and took good care of their stuff. Boys were doing the riderless distance contest, um, you know, moving dismounts, everything else, and they were wrecking the bikes. The guy said to me, if the boys' bike is half as nice as this girls' bike, you've got a deal. 
I said, well, you know, sir, I showed you the girls' bike first because the boys' bike is even better. I brought out the boys' bike. He handed me $6,000 in $100 bills that looked like one piece of paper. It was like, <laughs> and I was like, wow. And I was so glad I didn't sell them for $27.50 a few weeks earlier. And that's when I started believing in the power of the Internet. <laughs> How long have you been at Dudley here with the swap meet? This is the 10th year, but it's our last show at this location because the building froze last January. The building is closed, and I have a new location in Connecticut that's going to be opening for the next bike show, hopefully in September. Where in Connecticut? It's in North Grosvenordale, five miles from this location, right on Route 12. You know, the fact is I still like to meet people face-to-face. -face. I always work with people. If they have some circumstance, they're, they're doing it for their kids or they're, you know, had the bike as a child or whatever. I always work with people and try to give them good deals, keep the hobby alive. Yeah, I mean, I modeled mine. If you come to mine, hopefully yeah. next year. I will for I modeled sure. it exactly after this. You know, well, it's, thank it's, you it's so much. 25. That's a supreme 25 compliment. 25 bucks. I walk around, yep. I collect it, kind yep. of keep it chill. People are like, how big a spot do I get? And I go, well, we're just going to be nice to each yep. other and we're going to fill up the space. Just tell them whatever you need. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah, we haven't gone up in price in 10 years. And when I get to my new location, it'll be the same. What's your advice for where where is it at these days if you were coming into the game? I think always still look for balloon tire bikes. I sent out a flyer to all of the transfer stations and all of the junk collectors and all the pawn shops and everywhere. What I did was I sent, I put pictures of all the bikes I really wanted and they were numbered. They weren't even identified so the people couldn't shop them around. And then they, I started getting, with, I have a toll-free number that spells the word bike. And I just told people, if you have any of these, and even if you don't have them now, save this piece of paper. You may find them someday, and knowing where to sell them is good advice. And it's amazing how many you turn up like that. And just put out the word to as many people you know. I'm looking for old bikes. Treat people good. If you know it's worth a lot more than they're asking you, pay them more so they come to you every time and then just pay it forward and you'll find bicycles. And now I've, I've been on television a dozen times with bicycles. I'm enlisted in uh, Trash or Treasure, what it, what's it worth? And they just find me now. And that's what, if you get into it, and if it's the passion, people sense your passion when you're really into it, they get involved with it. They wanna, they wanna help find them for you. They wanna be part of it. And again, buy stuff that you like, because that's what you're gonna be excited about. Good advice. Tearful, slightly tearful goodbye to uh, Dudley Do Right Flea Market and the, the Dudley location. Could you share where the uh, your contact info for the new stuff is? Yes, it is. It's on Route 12. It's in North Grosvenordale, right on Route 12. The new address. It sounds like an Eric Clapton blues album. It's 910 Riverside Drive, and that's the new location. You'll see it right at a railroad bridge. It's a 402-foot-long, four-story brick building with our land behind it and that's where the next bike swaps will be all right thank you very much thank you so much and you can always reach me toll free 800-336-BIKE b-i-k-e which translates to 2453 cool thank you thank you
Hey, this is Kyone Wolf, and this is how the pre-Eversource Hartford Marathon bike ride pedal to the metal got started. I was hit while riding my bike by a car in the west end of Hartford in June of 2016. I got a plate and eight screws in my collarbone. And while I was riding my bike after I'd recovered, I was thinking oh so much about how nice it would be to not share a road with cars. It occurred to me that before the Eversource Hartford Marathon, they closed the streets down to set up bananas and water and stuff. So a couple friends and I got together and we rode the marathon route before the marathon started and it was awesome. It was glorious. It was almost totally car free and it was kind of exhilarating too because it was the marathon route and they were setting up. So I contacted the Hartford Marathon and I said I think it would be kind of cool to do this and we could raise money for BC Co, Hartford's only bike store and we could call it Pedal to the Metal because it's a marathon metal. And they were like, we're interested, but we need more time. So you have our blessing. Do it again. But could you do it at four in the morning? because we want to make sure you don't block the marathon traffic, which is totally reasonable. So I started a Facebook page, Pedal to the Metal, and drew a terrible looking metal and made some flyers. I didn't do too much, but I expected maybe 10 or 15 people to show up on marathon morning because it's four in the morning, who would do that? I had printed 42 release forms because 42 is my favorite number, and I ran out of release forms. Over 50 people showed up to this 4 a.m. bike ride in outfits and costumes and spandex and lots of lights. And it was so exhilarating and fun. And so we took a bunch of pictures and videos and I uh, sent everybody who'd signed the release form, I sent them an email asking like, what went wrong? What went right? How much would you pay for this if you knew that part of it was going to BC Co? How much would you pay if it wasn't? And got all this information, packaged it up, went back to the Hartford Marathon Foundation, and they were like, oh, cool, that is a great idea. Glad it went well. Sounds great. We'd like to do it to celebrate our 25th running, which is in 2018. But you got to raise 20 grand because it's going to cost that much for us to produce it, for the permits, for the insurance, for the police lead and rear car. You do that and we'll uh, we'll work this out. And I, I did. Um, with the help of some small businesses in the city and a few uh, generous personal donations. Now we're good to go. (laughs) I kind of can't believe it, but uh, the morning of the Eversource Hartford Marathon, launch time is now 3.30. Just because we can't stand the chance of blocking marathon traffic. It's limited to 240 riders this first year. We sold out halfway uh, within two weeks. So now it's just a matter of filling in the rest of the the medal reservations because you get a real medal at the end. You can boast that not only were you at the first official pedal to the metal ride, but if you're a sponsor, that's always open. Please contact me because we want to front load next year. There will be a fundraiser at Hog River Brewery, which is one of our sponsors. A couple weeks after the ride, uh, there will be a bike that REI is donating and putting together to raffle off. So I'm hoping that we can get it so front-loaded that it'll just keep feeding itself and, and it'll it'll be a new Hartford tradition forever and ever, amens. I hope you can go. I hope you can support it. Sponsorships are always open, so give me a holler. And uh, also stay tuned because we might have a little surprise party after the ride at a restaurant in downtown Hartford really early in the morning because you got to be off the course by 6.30. And then you can uh, party with us and hang out and keep watching the marathon runners blowing our minds because running 26.2 miles is nuts. Riding it, on the other hand, at 3.30 in the morning is only a little less nuts. So I hope I see you there. Thanks, Tom. Bye.
So some people like cruises, to me, it just feels like confinement. As a cyclist, I think going onto the islands might make you feel claustrophobic. But I talked to Diedrich Lukens, who is an avid cyclist who lives on St. Croix, one of the US Virgin Islands, and he talked about what it's like being a cyclist on an island. Hi, I'm Diedrich. I live on St. Croix and I like to run, bike and swim here. It's a beautiful island. Come visit. Um, obviously, we're somewhat limited on where we can go and where we can ride. Um, being an island in the Caribbean is classically um, not the best pavement in the world. So you have to be very, very vigilant all the time, but really uh, I think making being a cyclist makes you a better driver on this island because you know every single crack on the roads and we've got a lot of them. That's the biggest challenge really. This is not a this volcanic, is not island. The volcanic island. This okay. island is an upheaval, whereas the rest of the Caribbean is a, a volcanic island. Okay. So, I mean, we do have some volcanic segments, but it's mostly just seabed that came up. But you got some steep climbing roads here. Yeah. If you compare us to all the other Caribbean islands, we're, we're one of the flattest and lowest. But that being said, there's still some significant elevation here and some roads that go up. So the beast is... Uh, a notorious climb that was incorporated into the half Ironman that started here 30-something years ago, which is no longer going on, although a different group is going to replace that with a different triathlon. And so with that being a half iron, it's a 56-mile ride, and about smack in the middle of it, you have to ride along the North Shore on the North Coast and then climb the Beast, which is, I should know exactly, I think it's 1.6 or 1.7, but it's steep and twists and kind of unrelenting. You get halfway up and you think it's over and it's not. And then you get almost to the top and it's not over. You know, it peaks out in the lower 20% grades, which can be really tough. There's a segment you come around a, a very hard, greater than 90 degree turn and it hits you right with a 20 plus seg uh, degree segment, so. I mean, getting out of your driveway, your driveway is quite steep. My driveway is quite have steep. You, have you measured the grade? <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> I haven't, but I always make sure that I'm in, uh, I'm in the small ring before I try to get, get out of my driveway. Do you ever feel claustrophobic on the island as a cyclist? I don't. I mean, I guess maybe sometimes you would think there is, uh, you wish for a little more variability. But, uh, I mean, I lived on Hawaii for four years, and I never got tired, I never got island or rock fever there. It doesn't happen to be here either, but then again, I travel for work now, so I, I, I'm off island for 10 to 14 days a month typically to work. And, you know, over the last year and a half, I've been in Vermont, and now I have a bike up there, and so I'll go and ride there and ride some of the, the gaps. and some of the nice climbs there. So that probably helps, but even the guys who live here permanently, they don't, they don't complain. They ride pretty much the same routes all the time and, and they're okay with that. <laughs> Where I live, there's squirrels. Yeah. In Scotland, there's sheep. Yeah. Here, there's chickens. And mongoose. And mongoose. Yes. Have you ever hit a chicken? 
I've never hit a chicken. I've never hit a mongoose. I'll come close. You'll see a lot of mongoose here. They were brought in to help with cane rats when the island was pure sugar production. They didn't really, I don't think they really helped with the rats, but they definitely killed off all the native snakes and a lot of the native birds. And now they're everywhere, but you, you cannot ride without seeing lots and lots and lots of mongoose. Well, here's to hoping I see a mongoose <laughs> yeah. while I'm out here. Yeah. So the islands do have some pretty cool places to go biking. One thing is they're still recovering from the hurricanes that happened in September, and they will be for quite a long time. So one of the ways to support the islands is to go down there and visit. And it is pretty cool to go cycling around and see some mongoose. Every once in a while you find a company that is trying to do the right thing. They're trying to make durable goods without wasting resources that'll last a long time. That's what the folks at Emory Bikes are trying to do. I did a story about Emory Bikes back in episode 29 and it actually goes back a lot longer to November of last year when I first met them. They got back to me afterwards and became a supporter of the show. Their goal is planned durability. Their stainless steel C4 cruiser bike with the optional carbon belt drive is going to last a long time. It comes with motorcycle bearings. It's pretty cool. Go check it out. If you're a friend of the show, you can help out both the podcast and Emory Bikes by just going to see them on Instagram, Facebook, or send them an email at emorybikes at gmail.com. Thanks. Chris Haig and his wife Sophie are going to travel down from the top of North America to the bottom of South America. It's a long trip, but what he gets even more respect for is doing it with cat litter panniers. Just a warning, at the end of this piece, he mentions the name of his website, and the podcast is family friendly, and it gonna, it's gonna sound not PG, but it is. Trust me, it's just a little weird, but it's a good website, and the feed on Instagram has the same name. My name is Chris Haig, and I am just getting ready to ride bikes uh, across North and South America from Alaska to Argentina with my wife, Sophie George. When, when you try to tell somebody that you're going to ride a bike from Alaska to Argentina, there's a few different ways that they can react. And one of them is you're crazy. I think a lot of people don't genuinely don't understand it. They don't understand why you would want to do it. Some people are genuinely excited for you and, and jealous and they want to know more about it. I, I'd say those are those are the fun conversations to have about it. Um, every <laughs> every now and then you get somebody that just kind of maybe glances over it in the middle of a conversation like you just commented on the weather and that's kind of funny too because for us, I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a really big undertaking, something we've put a lot, of, a lot of planning and everything like that into. And you tell somebody about it and they're just kind of like, oh, that's, that's interesting, good for you. And then, and then move on in the conversation. Um, that's sort of a funny response, I think. <laughs> Why from Alaska to Argentina? 
I, I guess it's just the iconic bicycle tour. You know, you kind of sit around and you daydream about what's what's the biggest trip that you could do, and and then then one day you kind of realize that you've got everything in place to do it, so you do it. I'd say on an average day we would ride 50 miles. I guess if you break it down, you know, the the total trip is going to be somewhere in the range of 20,000 miles and we're giving ourselves two years to do it. So 50 miles a day, four days a week, that's 20,000 miles over two years. Yeah, so we've we actually, as far as budgeting goes, we've detailed that quite a bit. Yeah, we're, we're pretty detail oriented. Um, I, uh, I'm a little bit of a spreadsheet jockey. If you take a peek on our, our website, there is, um, there's a budget page on there. We've got it broken down piece by piece for all of our gear that's on there, which will each have, I want to say somewhere around, you know, $7,000 in gear when you consider, you know, tents, bikes, sleeping bags, pads, you know, any electronic devices, everything like that. And then over the course of two years, if you include all of our travel, food, all of our gear, visas, everything that we could imagine. I think we even budgeted for um, <laughs> for having to bribe police every now and again in, uh, in a few countries. And all of that equates to about $30,000 over the course of two years. And that's $30,000 per person. Well, for my, for my gear, I mean, the main piece at the center, all of it is the Surly Troll. And I chose that one because it's, it's a nice kind of nice in between between a, a road bike and adventure bike. It's comfortable to be in the saddle all day long and it's got just gear mounts galore all over it. So you can mount stuff and strap stuff to it without any issue. It's pretty malleable as far as racks go. And Soph's riding a Surly Disc Trucker. Both of them tried and true touring bikes. Uh, we're carrying a, a two-person tent, a two-person sleeping pad. We spent, we spent a lot of money and put a, a lot of thought into all of our gear. But then for my panniers, I went with the uh, Tidy Cat buckets. They're like five-gallon cat litter buckets. And they're, they're sort of great. They're lighter than, say, a pair of Ortliebs. You can fill them with ice and uh, put some cold beers or sodas in them if you want. Pull them off the bike and use them as a seat. Totally waterproof, you know, hard plastic and not that hard to make and kind of a fun project and, and a good talking piece when, when you're riding. It's always, it's always neat when people see something like that and, you know, they just want to ask you questions about it. And then also I just like the idea of reusing things and repurposing stuff. Yeah, I've, I've got a lot of uh, I've got a lot of kitty litter buckets to to mess with now. So if you need a pair of panniers, let me know. I can fix them up for you. <laughs> um, we had a we had a cat until um, maybe a month ago when we left Utah. But a uh, a good friend's watching her while we're on this trip. On our on our website, uh, which is 
theplacesip.com. One of the things that I've tried to do on there is put together a lot of the information that I wished I could have found when we were trying to plan it. So if you look on there, like I said earlier, you can find our gear list on there and it's broken down down to the safety pin on there uh, you know or how many paper clips are we carrying and what's the weight and the cost of every single item on there we've also put up you know a, a more simplified tour uh, packing list if somebody were looking to do just like a, an overnight trip our our budget our meal plans I mean everything on there that somebody could want to find as far as doing a, you know to, to plan a major tour like this um, so I'm, I'm hoping that it'll be a really great resource uh, for others looking to do something similar. <laughs> uh, the name came from Soph, my wife, and she always joked after we moved to Utah that in the past, and especially for her because she's, she's a city girl, she's originally from London, England, and in the past she only peed in restrooms in, uh, you know, in a house or in a, in a restaurant or something like that and then all of a sudden we moved out to Utah and uh, and I think she said that one day she had this epiphany when she was uh, going to the bathroom on the edge of the Grand Canyon and there was like an eagle flying overhead or something like that and uh, all of a sudden she realized like that she gets to pee in some pretty amazing places uh, and she always thought it would be funny to have like a photo album of all the places that she peed so so we decided to kind of make that the, uh, the theme for our trip. Thanks, Tom. One thing that a friend said to us when he first saw the name was that he thought that it was going to be a Dr. Seuss book about a little male dog. Hey everyone, Eric here, ringmaster of The Builder's Ball, New England's only hand-built bike show, returning to Boston this fall for our 8th annual show. We'll be at the Innovation and Design Building on September 22nd, that's a Saturday, from 2 to 10 p.m., with exhibitors from all over the Northeast, frame builders, component and accessory makers, bicycle garment makers, and artists, all in one cool space with great food, great beer, and fun music, playing all day long. Some surprises in store, too. You can learn more on Instagram. The show's handle is at Builders Ball. Or search for the New England Builders Ball on Facebook or the web. Don't forget to get your butt down to Boston's Innovation and Design Building on Saturday, September 22nd. See you there. Well, thanks for coming along on the ride on another episode of Bike Karma. I'd like to thank the band Mobjack and Keller Glass. You can check them out at mobjackmusic.com. They do our opening and closing theme music, and they have a lot of good songs. I want to thank our guests, Mike, Chris, Eric, Kyone, Diedrich, and Taryn. I want to give a shout out to the 80 Bike Shop in Houston, Texas. And another shout out to Sean Granton from the Urban Adventure League PDX, both of which I hope to have soon on the show. 
Thanks to all the people who've downloaded in over 50 countries. Really appreciate you checking out the show. Hey Jordan, I saw you download. Assalamu alaikum. Hola Peru, and thanks for checking out the show. And Oprah, I'm still waiting. Greenland, mm, you know, you know. If you have any comments, suggestions, or stories that you'd like to share on the show, or if your company or organization would like to be a supporter of the show, please contact me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com, and I'll get back to you soon. Thanks to everybody waiting in the queue for their segments to be edited and aired takes a lot of love to produce each little episode so i appreciate your patience thanks to uh uh-huh yup for the really nice review on itunes i appreciate it and for the other people who left positive reviews too i can't say your names i appreciate you as well the bike karma podcast is the intellectual property of tom brown all rights including copyright trademark and all those other ones are reserved Oh, Taryn, September is the hardest time to be a teacher. You're going back to school and really tired. I'm thinking of maybe giving up on my ABC quick check. No, don't do that. You should not stop doing your ABC quick check. It's the only thing that keeps you safe. A stands for air. You need that. B stands for brakes. You also need that. And C stands for chain line. That makes your bike move. And after that, you should do your quick releases because... That's the last step. And then you should drop your bike and make sure nothing's out of place. You're right. I shouldn't skimp just because I'm tired. Also, if you're doing anything that has two or more wheels and is not a car, you should wear your helmet because that keeps you safe when you're going really fast. Ooh, you're adding it in there, Taryn. Yeah. You know what I'd say? I'd say you're trying to keep it wheel. (laughs) 